Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I know I'm not the first, but let me wish you a happy 2017. I look around the room and think, hey, we're all here, 2017, and we're still here. So that's, yeah, it is kind of amazing, considering all the ups and downs of 2016. You may turn to 2 Kings 23. I know right where we left off. Just before Thanksgiving and the holiday break that we took, we were introduced to the last good king, King Josiah, the last good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And during the reign of good King Josiah, we saw that he discovered the law again. And having discovered the law, he read it out to all of the leaders in Jerusalem And they all agreed yet again to do the covenant of God, that what God said was what they were going to do. The same way that Israel had agreed to the law initially all the way back at Mount Sinai, they agreed to all of the covenant yet again. But as we're going to see tonight, it was already too late. And so this next series of kings is really the last kings technically of Judah, even though they're under Egyptian domination, they're under Babylonian domination, they're getting puppet kings at this point, still sons of Josiah, but they're doing obeisance to foreign kings. And this is the period of time, starting midway through Josiah's reign, this is the period of time that Jeremiah starts preaching. Now, this is really important. Again, if you get anything from this study, I hope that you're learning where the various different prophets fit in the history of Israel. But this is the period when Jeremiah is telling Israel and Judah specifically that they are going to go into captivity, into the Babylonian captivity. In fact, we're about to meet a king who only rules for three months and then is taken away by Necho, the king of Egypt, and never returns to his homeland. And that also was prophesied by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's prophecies sometimes are almost immediately fulfilled within months. But then some of the things that Jeremiah says, like he says that they're going to be in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So, okay, there's 70 years, and then that's going to be fulfilled. And most of the people who are in the Babylonian incursion and delivered into Babylon, most of those folks are dead by the time that that prophecy comes to fulfillment. And then at the same time, Jeremiah is going to talk about things that are going to occur at the end of time, eschatological things that haven't occurred yet. So we have to kind of think our way through the various prophecies of Jeremiah and recognize that some of them are immediate, some of them are decades away, some of them are millennia away. The importance of the fact that Jeremiah appears on the stage of biblical history at this precise moment is that Israel has 
like I said, been to Mount Sinai. They have made a covenant with God, and they have agreed to do that covenant. They're going to keep that law. They're going to follow every statute and ordinance that God laid down for them. But then throughout their history, they break that covenant, break that covenant, break that covenant until the covenant is largely unknown in Israel. And then during the time of Josiah, again, the law is discovered. It is taken to the king. King Josiah reads it. He reestablishes the Passover. He has all the leaders in Jerusalem come and hear the covenant. And they all say, we're going to do the covenant. And God is still going to deliver them into his wrath, into punishment, being taken out of their land, exactly like he promised them back at Mount Sinai, that if they did the covenant, they'd have freedom, they'd have peace, he would protect them from all their enemies, he would even protect them from the wild animals, they'd have a lot of food, land of milk and honey, they'd have rain, just everything would be fine. But if they didn't do it, God was going to not only bring their enemies down on them, but take them out of the land of promise. And so it's really important that Jeremiah 31 shows up right during this period, because Jeremiah 31 is the promise of a new covenant. And we're very big on the new covenant here at GCA, but the new covenant exists at this period of time. It's announced to Israel because they have broken the old covenant. And there's no way that they can restore their relationship with God or their state of blessing with God under the old covenant. They've already been to Sinai. They've already said, yes, we're going to do it. And then they didn't. And they tried to restore the relationship by saying, yes, King Josiah, now that we hear the covenant again, now that we hear the law, yes, we're going to do it. We'll do every bit of it. Too late. That covenant can't help you. And so rather than leave them in that state of being incapable, unable to restore the relationship, instead of doing that, since they can't do it, God does it. And God does it by proclaiming through Jeremiah a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, we've read it many times here. And in the coming weeks, we'll read it all again. Because it's so vitally important to understand what God is doing. He is announcing that he is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, very specific language. And then he says, not like the covenant I made with them when I took them by the hand, took them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. So since that was a conditional covenant, and the condition was they had to do it in order to get God's blessing. And then they didn't do it. That covenant is now broken. And so you can't go to that covenant to achieve relationship with God. That's a broken covenant. And so when they couldn't do anything to get to God, God comes to them and says, I will make a new covenant and via that new covenant, they are going to be his people. And it's an unconditional new covenant. Because if there were any conditions, as long as you do this, well, when they don't do it, the covenant's broken again. So God makes an unconditional new, qualitatively new, not like the old, a brand new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
And as I've said many, many times, that covenant is so important that it is repeated in the book of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. In Hebrews 8, it is quoted in its entirety. It is the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament imported into the New Testament anywhere because it continued to be so important to Hebrews, to Jews, to Israelites, that God was making a new covenant with them. And then you have Jesus come on the stage of history, and at the Last Supper, he picks up the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So we even know when the new covenant was established. Now, when Jeremiah is prophesying, he's still several hundred years away from Jesus. But he promises the new covenant. Jesus comes onto the planet, says that he is establishing the new covenant. And then the writer of Hebrews repeats the new covenant verbatim, house of Israel, house of Judah. And yet, not to whine and complain about something that you've all heard me whine and complain about enough, But yet there are people who say, well, God's done with Israel. But there's absolutely no evidence of that in the Bible. Instead, what you see is continuity of God's promises to Israel, how he's going to regather them, how he's going to implement the new covenant, how he's going to take out their stony hearts, give them a heart of flesh, how he's going to write his law into their inner parts, into their hearts, and how he is going to be their God. They are going to be his people. Jeremiah several times uses the phrase, if the ordinances of the sun and the moon and the stars, if those ever stop, then will Israel cease being a people before me. So if you get up tomorrow and the sun comes up, Israel is still God's people. That's what Jeremiah keeps saying. Now, the importance of this, again, is we're about to meet a king who is only going to be a king for three months. Then, like I said, he's going to be taken into Egypt and never come back. Jeremiah predicts that, and it happened. Jeremiah predicts the Babylonian captivity. By the time Jehoiakim is made king, after his brother is taken away into Egypt, by the time that Jehoiakim becomes king, uh, Jeremiah has already been prophesying in Judah for 20-plus years. He starts as a very young man, and he's been preaching for 20 years. I like to point out that the career of Jeremiah is some 40 years. Preached for 40 years, never had a convert. Makes me feel better. (laughs) So when he says, this king is going to leave, he's going to go into Egypt, he's never going to come back, that happens. When he says, you're going to go into Babylon, you're going to be there for 70 years, that happens. When he says, new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Jesus comes on the planet, here's the cup of the new covenant, that happens. So then the restoration that he also promises of Israel and Judah and David's greater son ruling over them is an eschatological end times promise that is as sure to happen as all the things we've already seen happen. Same Jeremiah, same God, same prophecies. Got it? Okay, so just so we can get our Israelology right, God is not done with Israel. So let's start in 2 Kings 23, 31. After Josiah was dead, that's where we left off. 
Several weeks ago, just before Thanksgiving, we ended with the death of good King Josiah. So then verse 31, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Now, before we go any further, take a look at Jeremiah 22 for a second. Keep your finger there. Jeremiah 22, 11. So that you can see it for yourself. Now, a name that this king, Jehoahaz, also had was the name Shalom. You're going to see in just a moment that Nebuchadnezzar is going to rename kings the same way that he renamed Daniel. Daniel was his Hebrew name, but he was then called Belteshazzar. And so it was very common for people to have more than one name. So here's what Jeremiah says about this same king that we just talked about. Starting at Jeremiah 22, verse 11. For thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who became king in the place of Josiah, his father. So now we know it's the same person. Who went forth from this place. He went forth from Jerusalem. Necho took him into Egypt. Here's what God says about him. He will never return there. He's never coming back to Jerusalem. But in the place where they led him captive, Egypt, there he will die, and he will not see this land again. So there Jeremiah has predicted what's going to happen to this king, Jehoahaz, who was only king for three months. <coughs> and Jeremiah was accurate. So now I'm back in 2 Kings 23. And Pharaoh Necho, having taken the king into captivity, made Eliakim the son of Josiah, he made him king in the place of Josiah, his father, and he changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land according to his valuation to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now, at this juncture, the book of Jeremiah really starts to open up. And over and over again, Jeremiah mentions this king, Jehoiakim. Because it's during the 11 years of Jehoiakim that Jeremiah is very active in prophesying the Babylonian captivity. And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of tonight. And we may even look at more of it next week, because Jeremiah 
is at this moment in history, and he's got a lot to say about what's about to happen. So we kind of have to plug him in. And these uh, sections that we're going to read from Jeremiah are fairly long, but I think it's worthwhile. So turn to Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. You can take your finger out of 2 Kings because we're done there tonight. We're, we're not going back there tonight. We're going to spend the rest of the evening in Jeremiah so that we become familiar with him. A lot of people know that Jeremiah has written the longest prophetic book in the Old Testament, but they have no idea really what Jeremiah is about or where he fits, where he fits in history, where he fits in the Bible. They just see him as a a random prophet that's an Old Testament prophet, but he has a very, very important, I would even say vital place in the history of Jerusalem in making the transition from being in the land of promise to being out of the land of promise, and then his prophecy of Israel or of Judah being in Babylon for 70 years is the basis for the book of Daniel and all the prophecy that comes out of the book of Daniel. Now, there is a portion of the book of Daniel that is history, and there's a portion of it that is prophecy. And as we go through the Jeremiah stuff, we're going to have to look at Daniel as well to see what his history is, because this is all this moment in time. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Jeremiah, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So before we left here, we were introduced to Josiah. We spent a couple weeks looking at Josiah's reigns, the highs and lows of his reign. The 13th year of his reign is when Jeremiah came onto the stage of history as a young man and began prophesying. By the time he starts mentioning Jehoiakim, he says, I've been prophesying here for 23 years, and you haven't listened to me. I'm telling you what God is saying, and you're not listening to me. And so he's got a long period of time where he is prophesying in Judah, and the people are ignoring him. In fact, we're even going to see sections of Jeremiah that do record that not only did they ignore him, but they jailed him and they punished him. And at one point he hires Baruch to write a scroll where he dictates the scroll and Baruch writes it out and it's delivered to the king and it's an accurate prophecy of what's coming and the king burns it. And so the opposition to Jeremiah is long-term and continuous. And to this very day, I would argue people are still resisting what Jeremiah has to say because he, as much as any of the prophets, says it's still about Israel. Even though Israel is going into the captivity, even though God is punishing them, even though they're being taken out of their land, even though the northern kingdom has gone into the Assyrian captivity and scattered, even though the southern kingdom now is going to go into the Babylonian captivity, nevertheless, God says, as long as there's sun, moon, stars, waves, as long as that goes on, they continue to be a nation before me. And that's important. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, 
king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim. Who were we just reading about? Jehoiakim. So now you know why we have to spend time in Jeremiah. He's very specific about the fact that he shows up during the 11 years that Jehoiakim is king. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, who's the king after Jehoiakim, who is the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Is it worth pointing out that God is not saying, I knew about you. I was familiar with you. He's saying, I already had an intimate relationship with you. I already knew why you were being born and who I was going to send you to. I knew all that while you were in your mother's womb. So Jeremiah is being told by God, I have always been in control of your life. So now I'm going to tell you what to do and it's going to be hard. But you're going to do it because I've always had this relationship with you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Take a little side road here for a moment. I just recently made a new YouTube video that is about the fact that I had a conversation just a week ago with a friend of mine who is a pastor, and I won't mention his name, but somebody who was in leadership at his church made the comment to him that he didn't feel that he was important enough to the church. They made the mistake of trying to satisfy that fellow by telling him what they were doing for Well, yes, you get to teach regularly, and you, you preach every once in a while, and, and yes, you're important to the church. And I stopped him, and I said, oh, no, 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 that's the wrong approach. You don't try to convince him that he is genuinely important. You instead look him in the eye and say, you don't think you're important to the church? You're not. The church will continue fine without you. And the church has gone along fine without you. The church is 2,000 years old. Jesus is building his church. You're not important and nobody's important to the church. So in the video, I said there are lots and lots of great notables through history, names that we know, people that we've even given titles like Prince of Preachers and, and, and great men that we've lifted up, the Luthers and the Zwinglies and the Calvins and the Augustines and all those people that, that we know that are the notables within the church. And the one thing that's consistent about all of them is that they die and the church goes on because Jesus, the ever-living one, is the only important one in the church. Now, I said all that because one thing that I told my pastor friend that I did not put into the video was that I can't find anywhere in the Bible where anybody that God called wanted the job. I can't think of one. Now, I, I can see where Paul says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Okay, but as far as God knocking Paul down 
or as far as God telling the apostles, follow me and you're all going to die terrible deaths, or whether it's Isaiah arguing before God that he, that he can't speak to him. Woe is me. I'm an unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When God gets involved and says to somebody, you're mine now and I'm going to assign you, nobody seems to want the gig. And I get that because it's an awesome responsibility and I really don't think anybody should want the job. In fact, somebody who wants to be important in the church scares me. I'd rather it be somebody who doesn't really want to do it and can't help themselves because God has got a hold of them and is restraining them to do his work. That makes much more sense to me and gives me a great deal more confidence. So here Jeremiah again follows that pattern. Jeremiah says, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. How can I go out and speak for you? I'm just a kid. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Notice Jeremiah's reticence and God's absoluteness. Jeremiah's going, I can't, and I'm afraid, and I shouldn't, and, I, and God says, yes, and don't say that, and you're going, and you're speaking for me. End of topic. No more arguments. Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. And then right away, he tells Jeremiah it's not going to go good. It's not going to go easy. Because right at verse 8, he says, do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Hold on, wait, I'm going to need delivering? I was going to do your work. I thought this was all going to be friendly guy. Hey, it's Jeremiah. We love him. Right away, God starts saying, don't be afraid of them. I'm going to deliver you. Verse 9, then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, which sounds very much like what he did for Isaiah. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. And, here's the part that people seem to leave out too often, and to build and to plant. So yes, Jeremiah is going to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the kingdoms of the Middle East and the kingdoms in the north and Babylon. He's going to predict all these things, but part of his ministry and part of his purpose is also to promise and prophesy the rebuilding and the replanting of God's people. And Jeremiah does both. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Okay, there's God speaking of himself, telling us what he's like. And he says again, I watch over my word. If I say it, I pay attention to it, and I will perform it. So just like we've seen over and over again, that God's word will not return unto him void, but will accomplish the thing Whereunto he sent it, 
Well, here he is again saying, I'm going to watch over my word and I'm going to bring it about. I'm going to perform my word. Verse 13, and the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. Okay, so you're speaking of Jerusalem now. You're thinking about Jerusalem, head north. Well, those are the areas of Assyria, Babylon, modern Turkey, but that's the area that so much of the warfare that encompasses Jerusalem and ultimately destroys Jerusalem, that's where it all came from. And isn't it interesting that it's not from the south, it's not from Egypt that these things occurred. God was very specific geographically. And it really wasn't from the west of Jerusalem that these things occurred. It wasn't the the eastern nations, it wasn't India, it wasn't any China, anything like that. That's not where it came from. The problems on Jerusalem came from the north, just like God said. So God says, verse 15, for behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I have commanded. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, And as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes and to its priests and to the people of the land. And they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah is told right away, it's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. They're going to hate you for this. But I am going to make you like a fortified city like walls of brass and you're going to walk out and tell my truth so now let's look at the first generalized prophecy of why God is doing what he's doing turn over to Jeremiah 11 and this is the place where God kind of states his case against Jerusalem and explains why he's going to do what he's about to do Jeremiah 11 Starting at verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 14. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God in order to confirm the oath 
which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then I answered and said, Amen, O Lord. So God is still saying the old covenant, what we call the old covenant, the first covenant, the covenant at Sinai, the covenant that established Israel as a people. I'm still holding them responsible for that because I'm God, I don't change, and I established this covenant with Israel and Judah, and they said, yes, they're going to perform it. And they did not perform it. And part of the, the deal, for lack of a better word, was that if they performed my covenant, I would give them this land of milk and honey. And then God says, as it is this day, because they're still in that land. But because they've broken the covenant, he's now going to perform what he has said he would do in the covenant and take them out of the land. Verse 6, and the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words to the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning them persistently, saying, listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Then the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my word, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Now, importantly, anybody reading this, even in a church Israel replacement theologian reading this, would say at verse 10, obviously God is speaking of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's talking about national Israel there. But now that God has established the terminology in chapter 11, when he gets to chapter 31 and says, I establish a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I formed with them when I took them out of Egypt, which he keeps saying here, that covenant that I formed with them when I took them out of Egypt. So therefore, the language is consistent, the terminology is consistent, and you don't get to play fast and loose with the terminology. I've told you before that I have a book at home. It's a New Covenant book, a New Covenant theology book, that movement, New Covenant theology. And so it's a defense of this New Covenant theology movement. And they quote Jeremiah 31 and quote Hebrews 8, and in both places, they leave the phrase house of Israel intact because they claim we're now the new Israel. We're the spiritual Israel. So the new covenant is made with us, the new Israel. And then where the phrase the house of Judah is in both those texts, Old and New Testament, the author adds an ellipsis and just eliminates house of Judah because he doesn't know how to make the Christian church Jews. And so he just eliminates House of Judah out of Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 and leaves House of Israel in there and defines House of Israel a way that God did not define it right here. 
he defines it as the church. So this is vitally, vitally important again that we recognize that the language of Jeremiah, who has a very good batting average going, that in his prophecies from God, he's very specific about what people he's talking about. House of Israel, house of Judah, whose forefathers he brought out of Egypt and took to Sinai and made a covenant. That's the people he's talking about in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 when he says new covenant with them. Does this make sense? Yes. Okay. Am I boring you? No. Okay. Yes, you're bored because you've heard this all before. Okay, so we left off at verse 10. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them so the wrath of God is coming on them and God is going to be so faithful to his own condemnation of Israel for their breaking of the covenant that even when they cry to him and it's going to be a pathetic cry it's a terrible thing what Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are going to do and set fire to the temple and and take all the the holy objects out of the temple and export all the people into Babylon and put them in slavery you know they're going to cry out to God and God says because you have followed your other gods because you've worshipped the things of your own hands because you have not kept my covenant I won't even listen I'm not going to respond when you cry to me Verse 12, then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense. But they, those gods, those that they formed with their own hands, but they surely will not save them in the time of their disaster. So here's God yet again, and I think it's kind of interesting again, that the plagues that God brought on Egypt all correspond with ancient gods of Egypt so that God could show his superiority over all those gods. And when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and placed before the Canaanite gods, the god Dagon fell down in front of the Ark because God, again, showing his superiority to all of these so-called gods. Here he is in Jeremiah yet again saying, when they don't get an answer from me, they're going to cry to their gods. They're going to go to their works of metal and their works of wood and their gods that they have to carry around on their shoulders and they're going to cry to their gods but when I bring out my wrath those gods can't help you so God is declaring his superiority over all gods verse 13 for your gods are as many as your cities O Judah and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars that you have set up to these shameful things, altars to burn incense to the Baals. Therefore, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up a cry or a prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. So this is God giving Jeremiah the assignment, go and tell the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, this exactly. 
Go tell them God's going to punish you and he's going to take you out of the land of milk and honey and you're going to go into the land of captivity and you're going to pray to him and cry to him and he's not going to listen to you. Oh, they're going to love you for that message. Go tell them that message because they're going to say, thank you, Jeremiah. We should amend our ways right away. But they don't listen. Just proving again their guilt. Their ongoing guilt. Can you see why when Jesus speaks to the leaders in Jerusalem, he brings up the fact that God has sent them prophet after prophet after prophet and that their forefathers have killed the prophets. And then he says, and you're going to kill me because they've always killed the prophets and the prophets have to die in Jerusalem. And so Jesus, the greatest of all the prophets, follows that pattern. Go to chapter 25. We are going to read the whole of chapter 25. Because there is nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. That's right. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the peoples of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. See where it fits? That's who we're talking about right now. Jehoiakim, who was king for 11 years. This is the prophecy from God to the people during the reign of Jehoiakim. And that's why we're here now. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Okay, so now Nebuchadnezzar's come into power Jeremiah is prophesying the Babylonian captivity. It's all starting to take shape now. Now, do you think it was any mistake that Nebuchadnezzar just happened to rise up to power in Babylon at this moment? Absolutely not. God, who's in control of human history, is raising up the very king that he's going to utilize to punish his people. And then just as we've seen God do over and over again, he's going to punish Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon for mistreating his people. So he's using Babylon to punish his people, then he's going to punish Babylon for punishing his people. That's a really, really sovereign God, but that's exactly how God works. Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, verse 3, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, These 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. So there he is, 23 years I've been among you. 23 years I've been telling you what God has said. 23 years you've had access to the word of God, and you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again. But you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from your evil deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and to your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, And I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your own hand. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who, by the way, has just become king. This is the first year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and God is already saying, here's what I'm going to do with Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to send all the families of the north, and I'm going to send them to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Now, don't get too upset about the word everlasting right there. This is one place where it's worth pointing out the Hebrew word. Olam is the Hebrew word, and it occurs a lot in the Old Testament. And it is a word that can mean everlasting. It can mean perpetual. But it's sometimes used as like the vanishing point or a place in the distance or beyond your lifetime, something that you you won't see the fulfillment of because it'll take longer than that. Because in a moment, Jeremiah is going to say that this everlasting destruction is going to include 70 years. And so I don't believe that he's saying Jerusalem will always and forever be an everlasting destruction because we know that the prophecies are that they're going to be restored. And even in the Life and times of the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus the Persian king, is going to send the Jews back to rebuild their walls and rebuild the temple. So there is at least a rebuilding effort because there needs to be a Jerusalem so that Jesus can come into it, so that the triumphal entry can happen, so that the crucifixion can happen. So don't get hung up on the word everlasting right here because Olam actually has a wider birth of meaning. I think some of your translations will say for a perpetual destruction everlasting is a good translation of the word but i don't think it fits the context here because the next thing it says is moreover i will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp and this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So granted, that would be outside the lifespan of the people who are going to witness it. So it would be like forever for them. But this same word, olam, is the word that is used to refer to the three days and three nights that Jonah's in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the great fish, if it's not a whale. And so I'm sure it felt like forever for him, but we're talking about three days and three nights there. So it's not forever. It's for a period of time that God has designated. Then it will be, verse 12, then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. So while we agree that Babylon is going to become a desolation in the eyes of God, that the people of Babylon are no longer going to be occupying because there are waves of other people groups, the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and 
and even in our own lifetime, um, Hussein recently compared himself, before he was captured, he compared himself to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he had a, a gold coin struck that had an image of Nebuchadnezzar and an image of himself because he likened himself to the great king of Babylon. And he claimed that he was going to rebuild Babylon and rebuild the Hanging Gardens and it was going to be one of the great wonders and everything else. So this history in the Middle East is still very current to the people who are over there. And even though Babylon is a destruction in that they are destroyed out of their city, the city of Babylon and the surrounding area continues on as different people groups come in. So we have to recognize the way that word's being used. Verse 13, I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Notice how specific that is. God has just said, Everything that is in the book of Jeremiah, I'm watching over it. I'm going to do it. And so when we see the promises of the restoration of Israel, when we see the planting and building promises, God himself said, I'm going to do those things. I mean, it's like God has Jeremiah's back. God is standing behind Jeremiah going, you know what he said? He said it because I told him to say it, and I'm going to do everything he said. Yes. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, the Israelites, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So now God is proclaiming that he's going to unleash his wrath on Israel, starting in Israel, and then to all the surrounding nations. And you see that exact same image when you get into the book of Revelation. We were talking about it last night as we were reading out of 1 Peter, because Peter said that judgment is going to start in the house of the Lord, which is exactly what all the prophets say. Judgment starts at Israel, starts at Jerusalem, the place where God placed his name, and then flows out to all the nations, the same way that in the restoration, the blessings are going to start at Jerusalem with the Israelites, and then out to all the nations. That's what Zechariah predicts. And so again, the pattern is consistent. So make them drink of this cup of my wrath. By the way, again, the imagery should sound familiar to you because it's picked up again in the book of Revelation. John sees a woman who is holding a cup of abominations, and again, God speaks of pouring out his wrath. So if God did it to Babylon or did it to Israel into Babylon, then you can be assured that everything that is prophesied by John of what God's going to do in the future is also true because the imagery is the same. Got it? I, I got to go. You're getting bored. I can feel it. I'm really interested in this. But, but you know, you people, you're not saved. So, no. They shall drink it, the cup of my wrath. They shall drink it and they shall stagger and they shall go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Verse 17. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations to drink to whom the Lord sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes 
to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse, as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the lands of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, and all the kings of Tyre, and all the kings of Sidon, and all the kings of the coastlands, which are beyond the sea, and Dedan, Tema, Booz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the deserts, and all the kings of Zimri, and the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword that I will send among you. By the way, do you know why so many of these cities and kings sound so foreign to us now? I can read these words, but we don't know exactly where some of these cities even were. Part of the reason we don't know is because God just said, I'm going to wipe you all out. And he did. Verse 27, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword that I will send among you. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall surely drink. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name, it always starts in Jerusalem. And shall you be completely free from punishment? Again, this is parallel to what we read last night during men's meeting from 1 Peter. Because the way that Peter posed it was, judgment starts with the house of the Lord. So then what's going to happen to those that aren't following the word of God? Well, that's exactly what God is saying. He's going to start the punishment in Jerusalem among the people of God, among the house of the Lord, and then it's going to go out to all the people who don't know him, who haven't followed him, who aren't in covenant with him. Again, the pattern is consistent. Verse 30. Well, we'll have to go back to 29. I missed a part. For behold, I am beginning to work the calamity in this city, which is called by my name, and shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, a certain amount of this, and this gets difficult, so I'm just going to have to say it, and you're just going to have to trust me for the moment, and we'll get deeper into it as we go. Some amount of this is eschatological. Obviously, because now God is saying that the punishment is going to start at Jerusalem and then it's going to go out to all the world. And that's language that we read about in Daniel's prophecies of the end days and that we read in Revelation and that we even see Jesus talk about in Matthew 24. And so while Jeremiah is prophesying and we see this happen among so many of the prophets, while he's prophesying about immediate events, there are long-term ripples, long-term foreshadows of what is coming. Because he being a prophet of God, 
is foreshadowing what's ultimately going to happen by what's happening immediately. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. I can give you examples. We've seen it time and time again. But if you're comfortable with it, I just I want to move on so you can go home because you're clearly bored. I got one of these from Gladys. I got, you know, so we, we can just go on. Behold, I'm beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Is it worth pointing out that when Jesus comes back for the final battle, that he has a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and with it he slays the people until the blood rides to the bridles of the horses? Do you see the consistency again? Language is consistent. It's interesting that, that there's nothing said of nuclear weapons or Tommy guns or sword. That's what God is going to bring against the inhabitants of the earth. And they don't know who did it. Yes. Therefore, verse 30, we've got to get done here. I'm never going to get to the end of this chapter. Therefore, you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. That language of those that tread out the grapes is picked up again in the book of Revelation. A clamor has come to the ends of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, evil is going forth from nation to nation, and a great storm is being stirred up from the remotest parts of the earth. And those slain by the Lord on that day shall be from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried, they shall be like dung on the face of the ground. Wail, you shepherds, and cry, and wallow in ashes, you masters of the flock. For the day of your slaughter and your dispersions have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. Flight shall perish from the shepherds, and escape from the masters of the flock. Hear the sound of the cry of the shepherds. And the wailing of the masters of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pastor. And the peaceful folds are made silent because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his hiding place like a lion, for their land has become a horror because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of the fierceness of his anger or his wrath. Now, the reason that's all important is that Jeremiah said this to the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. This is before the Babylonian captivity, but it's coming. Josiah's first son has been taken into Egypt and been killed. And then Necho, the Egyptian king, has made this Jehoiakim the king. And he is taxing the people heavily to pay tribute to the king of Egypt. And Jeremiah shows up and says, that's not your biggest problem. Your bigger problem is Nebuchadnezzar, who you barely even know. He's in his first year in Babylon right now. And God is going to use him to bring a kind of destruction on you that is so earth-shattering in its execution that it's going to foreshadow 
the ultimate wrath of God at the end of time. And this all occurs during the time of Jehoiakim. So that's why we read it today. Now, we only got to maybe three of the seven chapters I wanted to look at tonight. So next week, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to read more Jeremiah, and we're going to see more revelation from Jeremiah of what God is going to do with these people, and all of these prophecies that we're going to read at this moment come during the time of Jehoiakim, come during this 11-year period, which can be placed in time. We know where it is. We know when the kings of Judah reigned, what their time frames were. And clearly, Jeremiah is talking during the time of Jehoiakim before the Babylonian captivity, while Nebuchadnezzar is just becoming king, and he is accurately predicting everything that God is going to do via this new king who has just risen up in the north. So do you, do you get the picture? Yeah. This is great stuff. And as we dig deeper and deeper into it, we're going to understand more and more of what Jeremiah is saying and yet again, people didn't listen. And Jeremiah's reference to the new covenant, I said it at the beginning, I'll say it again now, is vital to your understanding of how the Bible works and the history of the Old and New Testament. If you don't get that, you can't get the Bible. Got it? Yes, sir. I said you can't get it, and then I said got it. <laughs> got it. But if you got it, then we're done for tonight. Questions? Go easy on me. Did you enjoy that? Are you glad we're back here on Wednesdays? Yes, sir. Yes. Or am I the only person that was looking forward to this? <laughs> yes, ma'am. When, when he talks about taking this cup of wrath to all the nations, that's figurative language. Because he, he never left Jerusalem. Right. You can see that it's figurative language when he says... If they refuse to drink, they will drink anyway because it's God who's going to institute this wrath and they can't stop it. So God's wrath is coming on the planet, coming on the people of earth. And that hasn't happened yet. But the wrath in the Middle East did happen. And if the wrath in the Middle East did happen, we can be assured that the wrath to come is going to happen. Make sense? Yes. yes. Otherwise, Jeremiah's wrong. And God said, I'm right behind him. I'm doing everything I tell him to say. So, Ezekiel does a lot of prophesying against various nations as well. Yes, absolutely. Against the nations in particular that surround Israel. You know, nobody brings up Australia. No one says anything about South America. But they have a lot to say about the nations that surround Jerusalem because that's the center of God's attention. That's where God placed his name. As it is to this day. Have you been watching the news the last couple of days? Everybody's upset about Jerusalem again. And is Trump going to move the embassy to Jerusalem? And, and is Jerusalem going to have to give up more land in order to live at peace with these surrounding nations, the Arabs? The Yeah, so th these prophecies, even though they're Old Testament prophecies and we have a sense that, oh, that was a long time ago, several thousand years ago, Jerusalem remains the center of world socioeconomic political upheaval in the world. 
And I am convinced that when World War III starts, it's going to start over Jerusalem. Which is amazing, because I just don't see the world caring about another nation that was a great nation at the time of Jerusalem. Tyre. Nobody's upset about Tyre. You don't hear about Sidon on the news. There's nobody getting upset about the Hittites. It's just, it's not happening. But Jerusalem, the place where God placed his name, is still in the news constantly. And that's not by mistake. That's because God is still interested in Jerusalem. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.